This is Mark Tyler Nobleman, author of Boys of Steel, the creators of Superman, and you're listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 91, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we are going to be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 32, aka the Hey Kids, Come Buy This Awesome Toy episode. Once again, I want to apologize for the lack of an episode last week. As I explained a couple episodes back, the new job just isn't allowing me as much podcasting time, so these things will happen. And on top of that, I had my notes probably 99% done, and I kind of procrastinated on actually sitting down to record, and then I got sick, which seems to always happen when I procrastinate. So you'd think by now I would stop learn, stop you know procrastinating, but that's how my, how my life goes. Uh, but the good news is what you are hearing right now is a brand new episode, so it's like a little Christmas present from me to you right in your ear, which sounded a lot less creepy before I said it. Uh, but first up, email. And I think I really need a soundbite. Or something for this. Superman. Yeah, not really what I had in mind. But A for effort. Anyway, first up, an email from Charlie Niemeyer in response to episode 87. Hi, Charlie. Uh, that's me, not his email. Anyway, his email starts out with the subject Action Comics number 31. And he writes, Hey, Mike. Hey, Charlie. Uh, didn't we cover that? No. Anyway, uh, Charlie continues. Ironic that you would cover this issue just before I'm covering Superman 293 on my show, which also involves gases affecting an entire city. As it turns out, some writers still didn't understand gas dispersal in 1975. So, yay, comic writers. And that is ironic. Like rain on your wedding day. Like a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just didn't take. And who would have thought? It figures. Okay, I'll stop. But yes, it is funny. And, you know, Michael Kaiser and I, when we were doing Legends of the Batman, we ripped some of those stories on their poor realization of the laws of physics behind dispersion of gases. So it's... Well, I'm not really sure if it's comforting or, or just sad that it wasn't just Bill Finger and Gardner Fox, but it, it does show a wider problem. Uh, anyway, Charlie can... Oh, the, the issue he was talking about, Superman 293. He covered that on episode 56 of Superman in the Bronze Age, which is a show you should all be listening to. After this show. Or before. 
whatever, as long as you listen to both. That's the important thing. Anyway, Charlie continues, I enjoyed your coverage of the issue, but I wanted to point out something about the hydrocyanic acid. Yes, there was only a small amount that would only pool up under the doorknob, but that gas is also lethal if inhaled. So, while it wouldn't have touched Clark and Lois, they still could have died just by breathing it, which is why Clark is so worried about it. That doesn't explain why he later takes Lois back there, but I guess they forgot about it by then. I mean, there had been several panels of story by that point. Anyway, great episode as always, and I look forward to the next one. Charlie. Okay, well, that actually does explain why he was in such a hurry to get her out of out of the room. And given the aforementioned issue with the dispersion of gases, and by extension fumes, it makes sense, air quotes, sense, why he thought it would be okay to take her back later in the story. So, yeah. So thanks for clearing that up, Charlie, and, and thanks for the email, and Sorry it took me so long to get around to reading it. Uh, We've got to get you back on the show really soon, or possibly sooner, if we can arrange it. Uh, But next up is an email from Sean Engel, who I actually just talked to -to voice-to-voice a couple days ago. But anyway, Sean's email is in response to episode 86, and wow, am I really behind on emails. Uh, And I actually had to look back to find out what I covered uh, in that episode, Just as a reminder, it was the Sunday storyline where Lois received an inheritance of land from crazy old Uncle Hornswoggle or some such, Uh, and then hijinks and mayhem and period racism ensued. So in response to that, Sean writes, Hey Michael. Hey Sean. I wanted to write in on episode 86 where you covered the Sunday strips. I loved the episode, but yes, there was something familiar with the storyline. Maybe Siegel thought that people reading the newspaper strips wouldn't be checking out Superman and other mediums at the time, so he felt he could reuse the idea in this one. And looking at the panels you posted on the site, I also have to shake my head and sigh about the depiction of minorities in the 1940s. I'm glad that you aren't shying away from mentioning slash posting these, as they are a part of comics history, but that you are putting them into the context and making a point about how it was part of the time period and wasn't considered offensive at the time. Sadly, separate entrances to businesses and drinking fountains weren't considered offensive either. Sigh. <laughs> and yeah, I, I've kind of talked about this before. I, I think it is really important to point these things out. We as a nation and we as a human race have many uncomfortable things in our past. I don't think we should dwell on them, but we also shouldn't forget that they happened. Uh, We shouldn't forget why they happened and how they happened in order to make darn sure that they never happen again. And it's equally important, at least to me on a personal level, to put them in context of the time. Not to excuse them in any way, but to show that you know, Leo Nowak or Jerry Siegel, you know, whatever artist is illustrating or writer is writing a particular story isn't driving some, you know, bigoted vendetta. It doesn't make it any less wrong, but when it's a problem throughout the entire culture, it helps to know that so that you understand better why it winds up in a Superman story. I give a lot of thought to people who might listen to this show who 
maybe are you know experiencing golden age comics for the first time and you know maybe they're younger and and just don't have a good frame of reference for that kind of racism um i grew up in the 80s where well racism wasn't gone i mean it's not gone today but it wasn't like in my parents or grandparents generations when they were you know there were as you said separate drinking fountains and these back of the bus rules um i don't know the demographics of the people that listen to this show but I recognize that there's an entire generation out there that has even less frame of reference for it than I do. So I try very hard to put things like that into context. Again, not to excuse it, but hopefully explain it a little more. If any of that makes sense. So, uh, Sean continues. But what I have to comment on the most is the use of photograph by Nickelback in the show. Really? That could be grounds for revocation of your man card. Geez, next thing you know, you'll be pl- you'll be playing songs by Smash Mouth or Madonna or oh wait. Anyhow, I'm still loving the show and I'm gonna try and catch up this week as I fell behind a little. Hope the new job is going well for you and I will chat with you later, Sean Engel. And I gotta tell you, Sean, I stand by the Nickelback joke because I was quite amused by it. But then I'm amused by a lot of things that probably aren't all that funny. In a broader context, but but yes, I I, I I do think I lost a little piece of my soul, and, and probably my man card that day, inserting Nickelback. But then again, in an earlier episode of the show, I did use Justin Bieber, so kind of makes Nickelback look a little better now, doesn't it? Just as a reminder, Sean is host of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, where he is covering '90s. Green Lantern and Guy Gardner comics. Uh, Sean's show is is a highly entertaining show, and and I look forward to each and every episode. Um, He comes out weekly on Fridays. You can find his show at justoneoftheguys.libsyn.com, and it gets the uh, highest recommendation that I can possibly give it, as does Charlie's show, as I mentioned a little earlier, which is Superman and the Bronze Age. And you can find that at supermanandthebronzeage.com. So anyway, thanks Charlie and Sean for the emails. Again, very sorry it took so long to get around to reading them. Um, I'm not sure exactly why that happened, but there you go. So with the emails aside, we've now reached that wonderful time that is where I take a break and put in a promo. So we will do that, and on the flip side, we will dive into our story. My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. The randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me. Listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20-minute long box. The 20-Minute Long Box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20-Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. Random. 
So like I said, this episode we are looking at Action Comics number 32. With a January 1941 cover date, it was released on or around November 21st, 1940. That's the date given at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Uh, November 21st, 1940, however, was actually Thanksgiving Day. So, in reality, it was probably available sometime after that. Or maybe before, depending on the schedules and what part of the country you were in. Uh, But like I said before, until someone comes up with a uh, better amount of information, I'm going to go with what Mike's has. The cover price was a dime, just like always. Unlike the last few comic books we've covered, however, there is not a designation on the front that the book is 15 cents in Canada. It does, however, have the rectangle below the 10 cent tag where that line would go, and the rectangle disappears next issue. So I imagine what happened is that the exchange rate changed after the cover was pasted up, but before it hit the presses. So they just, you know, taped off the words and went with it. Like the last few issues of Action Comics, there is differing information for the artistic credits for the cover. Mike's credits Joe Schuster and Paul Loretta, while the Grand Comics Database credits Schuster and Leo Nowak. Either way, it's an awesome cover that shows Superman busting George Reeves-style through a cement brick wall on his way to rescue a man who is strapped into an electric chair and about to be killed by a bearded and masked scientist. This is just a phenomenal cover. Superman looks great, and you can almost feel the rumbling and and hear the crash as he smashes through the wall, and the, the Superman march kicks in. And it also tickles me because... To Superman's left and kind of behind him, there's a huge bank of windows. Does Superman smash through the window? No. He smashes through the brick wall. Why? Because he's freaking Superman. One criticism, which I bring up only because I'm podcasting about this, and it's my job to give a somewhat fair and balanced analysis, is that the S on Superman's chest looks a bit rough. But only, but only really a bit. I mean, otherwise, it's a phenomenal cover and one that I really wouldn't mind having as a, a print or a poster to hang on the wall. The Superman story inside is back to 13 pages this time, so I can keep my angry nerd rage bottled up tight. It was written by Jerry Siegel, illustrated by Jack Burnley, his fifth in his run here on Action Comics, and was edited, along with the rest of the issue, by Whitney Ellsworth. The story was untitled at publication, but has since been called The Preston Gambling Racket and The Gambling Racket in Metropolis. Neither of which are very interesting titles, unfortunately. Of all evils, gambling is one of the most vicious. Its toll of human suffering is almost beyond belief. To smash the gambling racket in Metropolis is Superman's goal in this thrilling new adventure of the man of tomorrow. As our story begins, a police call is heard at the Daily Planet that a man is threatening a suicide jump from the Gerard Bridge. Clark Kent rushes to the scene and, after seeing police are having no luck taking the man down, slips away to go into action as Superman. Seconds later, though, the man leaps, but as he plummets downward, a tremendous blue-clad figure streaks through the air, 
grabbing the falling man and setting him safely on the ground. Superman asks the man why he would want to commit suicide, and the man replies that he's gambled away every cent his family had at the Preston Club, and now he doesn't deserve to live. Superman scolds the man for even considering abandoning his wife and children, and after the man promises not to do it again, our hero resumes his guise as Clark Kent and resolves to put an end to the Preston Club, so that incidents like this one will never happen again. Clark pays a visit to the police chief, who says he's helpless without official instructions from the mayor. Clark then visits the mayor and threatens to write an article unless he does something. Somewhat hesitatingly, he leads Clark and an officer on a raid of the club, but they come up empty-handed when no gambling is found. Afterward, while wondering if the suicidal man might have lied, because, you know, suicidal people always lie, Clark changes to Superman and follows the mayor back to his office. Outside the mayor's office window, the Man of Steel overhears a phone conversation where Preston thanks the mayor for the tip-off about the raid, saying exposure of the club would have been bad for both of them. The next morning, Clark tells Editor White about the failed raid, and White suggests Clark and Lois pay an unexpected visit to the club and hopefully catch them off guard. On the way, and once arriving at the club, Clark turns on the Coward Act, which neither endears him to Lois, nor does him any favors when Preston shoves Clark, telling him to scram. Fed up with Clark's milksop behavior, Lois returns home. After changing her clothes and her hair, she calls several friends, finally finding one gentleman friend to escort her back to the club incognito. Lois enters the club and starts to play a variety of games. When she loses badly and can't pay, she's brought before Preston, who grabs her purse to make sure she's not lying about having any money. When he finds Lois's reporter ID and realizes who she is, Preston pours a glass of strange liquid and then forces Lois to drink at the point of a gun. Meanwhile, Clark nears his apartment when he spots two thugs in a nearby alley waiting to jump him as he passes by. He changes to Superman and leaps to the top of a nearby rooftop and then pounces on the thugs like a fanboy on a retcon. Bullets fly and a fight ensues, but after all is said and done, you never walk, you never run. You're a winner. You've got the moves, you know the streets, break the rules, take the heat, you're nobody's fool. Wait, that's not right. Let's rewind. Okay, bullets fly and a fight ensues, but after all is said and done, Superman is leaping his way back to the Preston Club with an unconscious thug under each arm. Why? Because he's freaking Superman! Outside the club, Superman starts to resume his guise as Clark, but while in mid-change, he turns and is shocked to see Lois Lane gazing at him with a wide-eyed stare. Superman then spends a good 60 seconds wondering if he should kiss her or kill her, before realizing that her stare isn't one of amazement at uncovering Superman's biggest secret, but in fact Lois appears to be in a daze and is completely unaware of anything going on around her. Not really caring, but thinking he should do something anyway, Superman leaps to the side of the club and uses his super hearing to listen in as Preston, for no real reason in particular other than for purposes of plot, explains to one of his thugs that the liquid he forced Lois to drink caused her to forget everything. 
Superman then tosses the unconscious thugs from earlier, football-style, through a second-story window and grabs Lois, leaping off, soon arriving at a doctor's office. After a thorough examination, or at least a few minutes of poking her in the face, the doctor solemnly informs Clark that he can do nothing to help her. Her case is hopeless, he says. She will have to spend the remainder of her days in a sanitarium. As they leave, Clark thinks he has to do something. He stares deep into Lois's eyes and uses mental hypnosis in an attempt to bring Lois out of her days. And no, I'm not making this part up. Thankfully, the last-ditch effort works, and Lois informs him she remembers nothing after Preston forced her to drink the potion, meaning that Superman's secret is safe, and there will be no murder on Superman's hands. Well, at least not where Lois is concerned. The story's still young here. Finally deciding to go back to the main plot of the story, Clark urges Lois to keep the information about Preston a secret, and then heads home to his laboratory, and no, I'm still not making this up, where hours later he emerges Batman-style with his latest invention, the Crypto Ray Gun, a startling invention which he can snap pictures. They are then developed right in the gun and can be flashed upon a wall. Leaping out into the night with his newest weapon, and that's not a phrase I'd ever thought I'd have to say on a Superman podcast, Superman arrives at the club and uses the gun to take pictures of the illegal activities inside. He tries to enter the club, but has the door slammed in his face. So, because, once again, because he's freaking Superman, he does what any good Superman does, and smashes through the door and begins tearing the place up, destroying the gambling tables and punching in the face anyone and everyone in sight. He then chases after Preston himself, who, at seeing Superman's attack, heads for the hills. Meanwhile, Lois pays a visit to the mayor, wanting to know why he won't put an end to Preston's gambling club. The mayor reveals that his son was forced by Preston to drink something that affected his mind, and unless he does as Preston asks, he may never get the cure. Just then, conveniently, Preston barges into the mayor's office, and the mayor inexplicably grows a backbone, saying he's going to expose the crook. Outside, Superman uses the crypto ray gun to snap pictures of the scene, and then watches as Preston forces Lois and the mayor into a car and drives off. Once they're gone, Superman enters the office and uses mental hypnotism to cure the mayor's son before chasing after Preston and the others. And yes, it pretty much all happens that quick, folks. Can't stop now for proper pacing. We've only got one page of story left. Anyway, Superman catches up to the speeding car. Preston somehow jumps from the passenger side of the car just as it starts to tumble off a cliff with Lois and the mayor still inside. Our hero swoops in, plucking the passengers from the car, and then grabs the fleeing Preston and soon deposits all three of them in front of the police station. Once again, yes, it happens just that quick. Superman gives a crypto ray gun to Lois, saying it contains evidence, and leaps off, without bothering to give her instructions on how to use the darn thing. Thankfully, though, I guess Lois figured it out, using her keen reporter's intuition, because a short time later, Clark arrives at the station, where he, Lois, the mayor, and an officer view the photos, assuring a conviction for Preston's guilt and the mayor's innocence. The end. Phew! Quite the whirlwind at the end of the story there. Um, I think I think pacing-wise, more stuff happens in those last 
two, maybe three pages than in the entire rest of the story. Uh, but to get into the notes, you know, I, I really wanted to like this story. I think it started out pretty strong and had a solid premise, or at least a, a decent one, typical of this era of Superman. But as you might have been able to tell from my synopsis, I grew increasingly frustrated with it as I went on. And as I'll get into more in just a few minutes, it's becoming more and more clear that Jerry Siegel, despite the improvements that have come in his writing since Superman's debut, has lost control of the strip at this point. Or or at the very least, isn't the one that's really doing the driving. But to get into the actual page-by-page notes, uh, pages one and two, we've got a great opening splash that takes up about two-thirds of the first page. It shows Superman leaping upward to catch a car that has fallen off the side of a cliff. It's very similar to the scene at the end of the story, but not exactly the same. But still, it's a very dynamic opening shot to grab your attention, and Superman looks good, as he always does when Burnley is drawing. I like how the story took us right into the action. While, again, I would point out that newspapers, or many newspapers anyway, don't cover suicides or attempted suicides, it's one of those things that fiction usually overlooks. And, of course, I like the idea that Clark would be there in his capacity of Superman, regardless of whether he was covering it as a reporter. Some people will often refer to suicide as an act of selfishness. And... You know, not to not to uh, say anything that's going to be you know controversial or 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 uh, insensitive. Bottom line, it is. But a big, big majority of people who do commit suicide have some sort of mental issue or aren't clearly thinking through the ramifications of their actions. All life is sacred, and I like the idea that Superman, above all else or above all other people, holds that idea. Much of that view of the character comes from future depictions. I mean, I'm doing some reading into the scene here. But as he says over on page two, I won't let him throw his life away. And that, to me, is an example of the hope that Superman represents. Hope that even though people may make what appears to be a selfish or foolish decision, Superman sees the potential in man and ultimately that's why he does what he does. Much like there's more below the bespectacled facade of Clark Kent, Superman sees that there's more below the phony and and often flawed facade of man, and will do everything in his power to make sure that that potential isn't wasted. And again, I'm reading a lot into that, but... (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm really not, because like I said, over on page two, he says, I won't let him throw his life away. And yes, again, much of that comes from, much of what I just said comes from future depictions of the character, but I think that inherent goodness and hope, uh, despite the silliness of these stories and, and the way Superman seems almost reckless at times, I, I think it shows that that hope was there pretty much from the beginning even if it wasn't as overt as it maybe became later. Uh, But to get 
to get back into the thing that is <laughs> readily apparent in the story. Um, really great art on these opening pages, too. It's a very fast-paced opening to the story that really grabs you, and Burnley's dynamic art does its part by simply not letting you go once the, once the action of the story has hooked you. And you know, the more I look at these opening two pages, the more I love it. Um, especially page two. It's just a really great page of art from, from Jack Burnley and, and a great page of writing from Jerry Siegel. The perceived simplicity of the writing and art of Golden Age comics, and not just Superman, but, but all comics, even though it may not apply, what I'm about to say may not apply to other comics as much, but the the perceived simplicity of the writing and art disguises the depth of the concept that even Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster may not have been aware of at the time of creation. Uh, page three. Unfortunately, after all my kind words about you know Superman seeing the good in humanity and being this bright shining symbol of hope, we turn the page where he kind of berates this suicidal and possibly mentally unstable man, and then sends him on his merry way. But at the same time, this guy's suicide attempt isn't the point of the story, or the character's objective at this point in history. His objective is going after the root of the problem, which in this case is the crooked gambling. And given when these were written, it's it's hard for me to fault them for not spending the pages to deal with, you know, making sure this guy gets the help that he needs. It's still bad. Don't get me wrong, but not something I can levy uh, extremely harsh criticism against them for. Uh, page four, when Clark goes back to the planet and tells the editor, again, presumably Editor White, though he's still strangely not named in this story, uh, about the failed raid, Lois is there and snarkily comments, Are you sure you are wearing your glasses? Which, to us, the reader, is funny on a couple different levels, and... It's just kind of thrown in there, and I'm not even sure that Siegel realized the the humor in that. Um, and maybe he did. Maybe I'm just not giving him enough credit. But that kind of um, kind of underhanded and, and subtle humor isn't something that he's played a lot with in the Superman stories to this point. So it, it just really kind of stuck out to me. Page 5, we have a great example of Clark playing the coward, which Siegel really seems to be playing up more... In, in very recent stories. Uh, well, <laughs> the scene of Clark holding a man at gunpoint and forcing him to confess to murder, uh, notwithstanding. Page six, uh, well, really the bottom of page six. To this point, the story had been going pretty good. It was chugging along like a fairly typical Superman story. But then we get to the bottom panel, or the bottom of the page, and over to page seven, where... Preston pours Lois this shot and forces her to drink. And while there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, looking back at the story and analyzing it after I've read the whole thing, this is where the story kind of started going off the rails a bit, you know, for me. Uh, But first, a a few good compliments, I guess, on pages 7 and 8. I loved this two-page sequence of Clark coming across the thugs, looping around, changing to Superman, and then pouncing on them. It's just really dynamically illustrated. Uh, Page 8, the whole thing is just beautiful. As Superman leaps down at these guys, 
the fists start flying and he knocks their heads together. I just can't say enough good things about Burnley's art. Then we get to the end of the page with a great moment of Superman changing back to Clark and he turns to see Lois gazing at him with these wide eyes. Now, overlooking the fact that Clark is seemingly standing out in the middle of wide open space changing back to his secret identity, it's just a great, great moment in the story. And given the way these are printed in the Chronicles volume, this is a right-hand page. So you have to turn the page before you get the resolution to the the cliffhanger. Now, if I've got my page numbers right, in the original issue, it wasn't a page turn moment. You would just, you know, it was a uh, page eight was a left-hand page, so you would go to page nine, and there would be the answer. So it's not quite as much in the original, but given that most people today are reading these in collected form in the chronicles or archives, it's a really nice page turn moment. But to get back to my notes, so it's a great mid-story cliffhanger, and it really kind of hits you out of nowhere since while there have been instances of Superman worrying about his identity getting out, and you know we've had a time or two with Lois wondering about it, this is a very different situation with the idea that his identity has actually been exposed to one person that, uh, of anyone in the stories, it would make the most impact of. Uh, page 9, but like I said, this is where the story started getting kind of shaky. Um, for one, unfortunately, in order to find out what's wrong with Lois, Superman leaps to the side of the Preston Club and listens in as, oh so conveniently, just at that moment, Preston is busy explaining in intricate detail and, for really no reason in particular, exactly how this concoction works. If it weren't for villains' pointless exposition to flunkies, it would be a whole lot harder for Superman to do his job. And two, what is this this elixir? It's a potion so powerful that, quote, one sip and a person forgets everything. There's a throwaway line from Preston that he had a scientist friend make it, but as big a part as it played in the story, it really needed to be a bigger part of the story instead of just the deus ex machina weapon of the bad guy. Third, and final for this page, Superman throws the thugs like footballs. Not just several yards, but up and into a second-story window of Preston's estate. Now, on one hand, it does feel like Siegel wrote himself into a corner with what to do with the thugs. But on the other, and on actually a more positive note, I like that Superman, when he sees Lois is in trouble, would say, to heck with this, I'm going to deal with them later, someone in trouble that needs my help. Again, going back to what I said earlier, all life is sacred, and I like that Superman puts that above stopping a villain that really isn't an imminent threat. Uh, page 10, so then Superman, or Clark I guess, as it is in this point in the story, takes Lois to the doctor, and he can't help her, so sound the new power alert, because Clark uses mental hypnosis to cure her. Mental hypnosis, opposed to the other kind of hypnosis that is non-mental. But seriously, it makes me think back to Action Comics number 25, where the hypnotist Medini told Lois he could reveal to her Superman's true identity. 
That was the first time the idea was presented of Lois trying to ferret out another identity for Superman. So I find it really interesting that Siegel is, again, putting a connection between hypnotism and Superman's identity. Even though the two situations are completely different and might have been coincidental, I just find that really, really interesting. But then we move on to the most... Well, probably the biggest takeaway from the story. The thing that is likely most remembered about the story. When Clark returns to his laboratory and invents the crypto ray gun. Now, I want to make snarky comments about product placement and glorified toy ads, but actually, this makes me a little sad because it's another sign, and maybe the most glaring so far, that Siegel and Schuster have just lost control of the character. Now, to be fair, I don't know for sure that this was not Siegel's idea, but working in a placement of a toy or or something like a toy that Siegel and Schuster weren't even getting a sizable kickback on, if any at all, it, it just doesn't feel like something that would be high on Siegel's priority list at this point. Much more reasonably, I would guess that Harry Donenfeld or Jack Leibowitz or maybe even Whitney Ellsworth went to Siegel and said, look, we're trying to sell these things, work it into a story. And then Siegel was kind of hamstrung to oblige. I will be very happy to admit that I'm wrong if someone can, you know, uh, prove me so, but I really don't think I am. And, And either way, my goodness, Superman is such a marketing powerhouse at this point. They, they are pushing so much merchandise that they're actually working them into stories. And this isn't just a cheap, you know, fan club giveaway either. This is a licensed piece of merchandise produced independently from the comics. Wow. But all that aside, let's talk about the use of it in story for a little bit. You know, it's wonky, but it kind of works. Not really, but kind of. It says Clark creates the gun in his laboratory, which isn't something we've seen before, but I like the idea, even if it is more of a Silver Age convention, that Superman has this vast scientific know-how and can create these fancy inventions and things. Um, There's no fortress yet, obviously, so this just looks like a room in his apartment or, or maybe a rented building somewhere. But I kind of like the idea. The bigger question is, why does he need this? Why now? He's never needed it before when he's brought people in with far less evidence. And worse yet, this thing takes pictures and then projects them on a wall. Wouldn't it have been just as easy to, you know, use a camera? I don't know. It's fun and it's goofy in a good kind of way. But I just can't get around the idea that it smacks of forced marketing, no matter how much I might like parts of it. It kind of reminds me of those Total Justice figures from the 90s. You know, the ones that were created by a bunch of suits in a boardroom somewhere. Okay, folks, we want to sell a Superman toy, but a new kind of Superman toy, one the kids haven't seen before. Oh, I know. How about Superman, but with kryptonite armor? Uh, um, wait. Why does Superman need kryptonite armor? 
He's the only living being on the planet that is harmed by kryptonite, so why would he want to wear full body armor that shoots kryptonite lasers when it's really not going to be an effective weapon against anyone but himself? Isn't that kind of... Who cares? We'll write a comic. It'll make sense. The kids will love it. (sighs) That's how I picture that conversation going in the boardroom when they came up with the total armor kryptonite laser shooting Superman toy. Which I actually have. It's in a box somewhere at the moment. It's not being displayed. But I actually have it. And maybe I should get it back out. Just because it's so ridiculous that I should display it. Anyway, I realize that as a kid who grew up with boxes full of G.I. Joe toys, watching the cartoon daily and actually had discussions about G.I. Joe with his friends and would have read the comic had his parents bought it for him, I I should be very mindful of the fact that throwing stones in glass houses aren't, you know, it's not a good idea. But, yeah. Buy a crypto ray gun, kids. It's fun and lets you be like Superman in that not-at-all kind of way. I also want to point out, while we're talking about the crypto ray gun, and and I will get back to the story eventually. Bear with me, folks. I want to point out that while the advertisement for the toy said the crypto ray gun was made of kryptonite, quote, the amazing metal from Superman's birthplace, the planet Krypton, nothing in the story indicates what the gun is made of. In fact, given that in the sequel-written stories at this point, it's been established that Superman doesn't know where he's from, it begs the question of how he came up with the name Crypto Ray Gun. Given that Krypton gas is used in some types of photography, I guess it could be no-prized that perhaps the gun utilizes Krypton gas, but that seems awfully convenient, and and it's going a long way to explain something that's not explained in the book, which I guess is why they call them no prize. I don't know. Anyway, page 11, more really, really great art on on this page. Uh, The first three panels are pretty standard, but then we get to the bottom two-thirds of the page, and it's just awesome. There's a great shot of Superman busting through the door, which as I've said before, and will no doubt say many times in the future, never gets old. And then he just starts tearing up the place. He's breaking the gambling tables in half. He's busting thugs' heads. Just really great and dynamic stuff from Burnley here. I know we're only on Volume 5, and there has been uh, 10 volumes of the Superman Chronicles so far. But just of the first five, if you're going to buy one volume and you're really into the art more than the story, get Volume 4 or Volume 5, because those are the ones that have the heavy Jack Burnley uh, stories in them. Unfortunately, they didn't get them all into one volume. He did too many stories for that, which I guess is good, because we get more Jack Burnley art that way. Uh, But, you know, if you're into art more than story, pick up Volume 4 or 5 of The Chronicles. You know, if you can only pick up one. If you can pick up more than one, buy them all. Because, hey, you can never have too much Superman. Uh, Pages 12 and 13. I'm kind of going on a lot of tangents today. But it is all kind of related. And, once again, you can never have too much Superman. Um, Pages 12 and 13. Not much to say about the last couple pages. Other than, you know, it feels very rushed. Like, 
So many of the stories do. Uh, my biggest complaint there is that the bit with the mayor's son needed to be a bigger part of the story, or cut out entirely. Since we the reader knew or, or had a good idea that the mayor was on the up and up from the beginning, it might have been a better way to introduce that Preston had something on his son near to the beginning of the story. And then, you know, introduce it at the beginning and then let that mystery linger, which would deepen when the same thing happens to Lois. I don't know, maybe that's just a case of me backseat driving on the story, but it just it just kind of seemed weird to introduce it like it was and then resolve it, you know, a few panels later. Um, overall, though, like I said, this was a pretty solid story, but not perfect and not my favorite. Even taking out the shoehorned marketing of the crypto ray gun, it still has some issues, but, you know, it's it's not terrible. That's one thing I've noticed about recent stories. Um, even when they aren't great, they aren't great, they aren't bad. Siegel seems to be growing as a writer as well as getting a handle on what works with the character, which is difficult in and of itself given the rapid growth and influence from non-comics things like the radio show and now merchandising, apparently. Um, the art, you know, I've said it all through the comments here, great, as always. Uh, Burnley's got a bold and dynamic style. Unfortunately, he's only got two more issues left in this stint on Action Comics, and I am going to really miss him when he's gone, even though I know just around the corner we're going to be having some other artists coming in that will uh, put a new spin on things as well. Um, if you want to read this, it's been reprinted like so many stories we cover, only twice, which is kind of surprising given the Crypto Ray Gun in it. And you know, now that we're talking about reprints, I'm kind of kind of surprised that there has never been a replica of the Crypto Ray Gun produced and packaged with a reprint of this story. Maybe it wouldn't be a big seller, but I know I'd buy one, but, you know, then I'm a big dork. So, <laughs> but anyway, as for reprints, it's been reprinted twice. First in Superman, the Action Comics Archives, Volume 2, and then in Superman Chronicles, Volume 5. Hey, kids, comics! Hey, Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. But you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Um, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. That's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. We talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics, and then we talk about them, because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then we sing! Badly! Yes, well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Hey, kids, comics! Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com. Other features in this issue of Action Comics 
include Pet Morgan, The Black Pirate, The Three Aces, Tex Thompson, Clip Carson, and Zaytara, the Master Magician. There are also half-page ads for Superman number 8, which Michael Bailey and I covered last episode, and Batman number 3, which Michael Kaiser and I covered in episodes 21 through 24 of Legends of the Batman. And there's a half-page ad for More Fun Comics number 63, which heavily trumpets the Spectre. Uh, To quote the ad, it's another high-powered adventure strip written by Jerry Siegel, creator of the record-breaking Superman. Startling. New. Different. The Spectre appears every month in more fun comics. Don't miss it. And it's amusing to me that, aside from a small, you know, space filler type ad when the Spectre debuted, which was almost a year ago at this point, this is the first ad I can remember that specifically plugs the Spectre. And even more, it so heavily promotes the fact that it is written by Jerry Siegel, writer of the ever-popular Superman strip. And I think that speaks a lot about the growing popularity of the Spectre, evidenced also by his inclusion in All-Star Comics, but the continued growing success and popularity of all things Superman, which DC then, much like today, did everything they could to capitalize on. Speaking of All-Star Comics, though, the ad for issue number three of that title appears in this issue as well, uh, along with a repeat of the Crypto Ray Gun ad, which you might expect given the Superman story we just looked at. And again, we have a bank of ads for various you know, Superman licensed products, including the Bubblegum Cards, the Awesome Moccasins, the Crypto Ray Gun, and something called Superman Action Toys that I'm guessing are some sort of figures or or possibly wind-up toys. The illustrations show Superman lifting a tank in a plane. Um, I did some light Googling and didn't come up with anything on it, but I will keep looking into it. If anybody has an idea of what these Superman action toys might be, drop me an email to thrillingadventures at at greatcrypton.com, and I will share that with the listeners uh, on a future episode. Uh, but whatever it was, it does show that Superman's uh, got an ever-increasing saturation in the market, though. And last but not least, over the top of an, of an ever-growing ad for the Superman radio program, we have our 21st Superman of America page. The message from Clark Kent focuses on the topic of reverence. It, it, they've kind of moved into a word-of-the-day trend in the last few of these Superman of America page pages. Uh, But anyway, it talks about how the pilgrims trusted in God to aid them through times of stress and danger, and that heroes and martyrs throughout history have done the same, and that it's doubtful that the United States would be like it is today were it not for, or or, well, today being 1940, (laughs) were it not for faith and reverence. And it goes on, and he talks about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and so on, and then it says, Difficult and dangerous times are upon us again. But if we revere the God that made our nation possible and have faith in him and in the nation, we are safe from the ravages of the forces of darkness. Every one of us should consider it a privilege to go to church or to Sunday school and to offer reverence to God. And even beyond that, we should conduct our lives in a manner that would meet his approval. 
That, it seems to me, is the very least we can do to thank him for the blessings he has showered upon us in our great nation. It's it's kind of odd seeing... Well, it's not kind of odd. It's very odd seeing such an overtly religious message in a comic. But uh, it's a good message, just the same. As always, the page also has the... Uh, Superman's secret message, which can be decoded using code Jupiter, number four on our handy Superman of America Club decoder, and the message is, if we practice faith and reverence, we will keep our nation great. And yes, it says kept, not keep. Apparently, Kryptonian spell check is still a few years away. Other books on the stands in or around November 1940 included Detective Comics number 46 with the return of the deadly Hugo Strange in the Batman story. Adventure Comics number 57 had the final Socko Strong strip by Albert Sulman and Joseph Sulman, and it also had the final Federal Men strip written by Jerry Siegel. The strip does continue, however, with another writer that we'll talk about in the next episode where we focus on action comics. Uh, Siegel is still writing all of his other strips at this point, but Federal Men had been running since New Comics number 2 in late 1935 and was the third feature started by Siegel and Schuster. At this point, it was the oldest of the Siegel-written features that was still running because Dr. Occult and Henri Duval had both long ago disappeared, and it was also the shortest of the strips he was writing. Uh, being only four pages a month compared to the others, which are six, eight, or thirteen. Whether any of those things were a factor in Siegel stepping away from the strip, or if the upcoming additional Superman story and the quarterly World's Finest had a hand in it, I don't know. Either way, he's no longer writing on that, but is still writing Spy, Slam Bradley, The Spectre, Radio Squad, Red, White, and Blue, and, of course, Superman both comics and newspapers, which is just a, an amazing amount of work for one writer on a monthly basis. Uh, speaking of the Man of Steel, though, Superman number 8 came out, which, as I said, Michael Bailey and I looked at last episode, and there was also Flash Comics number 13 and All-American Comics number 22. And, as we mentioned last episode, All-Star Comics number 3, where The Flash, The Green Lantern, Hawkman, the Atom, the Sandman, the Hourman, Dr. Fate, and Jerry Siegel's own The Spectre join together to sit around and tell stories in the historic first meeting of the Justice Society of America. Just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go on about it. Michael Bailey and I talked about it last episode, but All-Star Comics number three, definitely one of the most historic comics of the Golden Age. And finally, More Fun Comics number 63 had the final Lieutenant Bob Neal strip written by Robert, uh, I believe it's Hirsch or Harash. Anyway, he was the writer and Russ Lehman was the uh, artist. Outside of DC, not a whole lot going on. Marvel had one book with Marvel Mystery Comics number 13, but nothing else really notable about that that I'm aware of. So... It seems the biggest thing of the month was the crypto ray... Oh, no. (laughs) The Justice Society of America definitely tops the crypto ray gun. But, you know, Action Comics number 
32, definitely the cheesiest marketing gimmick of the month. I will definitely give it that. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. not true that's impossible critics and naysayers abounded confusion reigned across fandom what'll i do what'll i do what an unusual view not to mention the first reactions to the supergirl costume i hated her so much it it the it flame flames flames on the side of my face breathing breathless Heaving breaths. Heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson... J. David Weider, And... Michael Kaiser. Take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right. Or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky, speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The New 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month. On iTunes and at new52superman.libsyn.com. Next episode, which will hopefully be out next week, but if not, in two weeks, we return once more to Superman's Audio Adventures for a look at the 19th storyline from the radio serial. 
it's only a six-part storyline, thankfully, uh, so it's a bit more manageable, and I, I should be able to knock that one out in just one episode of this show. But thank you all for joining me uh, once again. Sorry for the or another delay <laughs> in episodes. Um, I wish I could say it's never going to happen again, but it, it's it's going to happen again. So sorry. Um, if you have feedback or questions or comments about the show, please feel free to drop an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Once again, thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Sean, for those emails. It's always good hearing from listeners, especially ones that I am privileged enough to call friends. I also want to invite you all to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com where you can see show notes and back episodes and pretty much anything you need to know about the show. And I also want to point out, since I haven't done it in a while, that I also post other Superman and comic book related things there from time to time. Uh, twice a week I have the Super Random Super Panel feature, which I take a, a random panel from a Superman comic book and post it up there. Um, the, the panels span the gamut uh, from the Golden Age to the New 52, so you never know what you're going to get which is a terrible Forrest Gump reference, and I deeply, deeply apologize. Uh, But the final super random super panel of every month focuses on the DC Comics character of Steel. I, I, you know, I try to keep them Superman-related, but Steel is Superman-related to me. And the reason I decided to, to take the last panel of every month and focus on Steel is because Steel is awesome and everyone should know it. Uh, but also at the site, coming back to the show, once again, I kind of got on a tangent there. Again, sorry. But also at the site, you will find the RSS feed and the iTunes link for the show if you want to subscribe. If you use iTunes, I'd be very, very thankful to you if you could leave an iTunes review. Uh, we haven't gotten a lot lately on those, so if you use iTunes, hop on in, hop on over there and leave me a glowing review and let people know how awesome I am because or how, how awesome the show is <laughs> although if you want to talk about me that's fine too I'm not gonna complain uh, but let them know that you like the show uh, what you like about the show and cause it, it really does help people when they're deciding if they should download or download it or not um, at the site you will also find links to the show's Facebook and Twitter feeds uh, like the show on both sites and get updates whenever I have a new episode or other show-related news. Um, I've actually been posting some more things on the Facebook page as well. Uh, I posted a link. They recently opened a display at the Cleveland uh, airport honoring the creation of Superman, as well as Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. So I posted a link to that. Uh, whenever the uh, super random super panel is Golden Age related, I post it there for you to see. You know, it's it's nothing um, too much to flood your walls, but just a little something to uh, keep your mind focused on the Golden Age Superman in between episodes of the show, which sadly are are uh, larger uh, gaps these days. But you'll find all that at the site at greatcrypton.com. Uh, please don't forget about the Superman Podcast Network and the Superman homepage. Updates are posted at both sites whenever I have a new episode of the show, and there's lots of other Superman-related content for your eyes and ears in between, including the aforementioned Superman in the Bronze Age. Hi, Charlie. You have my address. Please send me the check. Um, And last but not least, I want to invite you to check out my other podcast, 
Green Lantern's Light, which you can find at greenlanternslight.com. And I co-host that with Jeffrey Taylor and J. David Weeder. We should have a new episode out next week if I can get my caboose in gear and get the darn thing edited. Uh, And on that episode, we look at four issues. We look at three issues of Green Lantern plus an issue of Secret Origins that tells the secret origin of Guy Gardner. And to top it all off, we have with us a very special guest. So be sure to check it out. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thank you very much once again for not only tolerating my tangents, but for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman. And I will talk to you later. Goodbye. This is for you.